We are so thankful you decided to take time out of your day to listen to this sermon. Central to all of our services is gospel-centered teaching led by our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff Warren. Together, we are a church that seeks to follow Jesus every day, and we hope you are drawn closer to Christ as a result of this message. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are struck, probably not as much as we should be, be but we are struck by your amazing grace, the gift of grace that sees us through the beginning of our journey of faith and walks us through times of great triumph and times of great disappointment and defeat and all the way to your grace sees us home until we meet you face to face. So Lord God, we give you praise for your amazing grace that stays with us, that holds us close to you and that won't let us waver. And so God, I pray for your grace today to pour out on this place pray that as we open your word, that your grace would open our eyes and open our hearts, that we might hear from you today. Not from me, not from, from commentaries and people that have been researched, but Lord, from you, we might hear today. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was in seventh grade, as all great stories start, when I was in seventh grade, I was uh, invited to go to a leadership camp kind of thing for young leaders like a weekend, I guess. And uh, I went with, with two other boys from my school and then, then three girls to my school. And for whatever reason, and looking back on it now, I don't quite understand the purpose of it, but they had a dance at the end of this thing. And again, I'm not sure what dancing had to do with leadership. Maybe I was just too Baptist and I didn't get it. But, but we had this dance. And so I had never, never danced with a girl before. Um, so, uh, there was a slow dance. I was, I was asked by this girl to go dance. I said, okay, I will. And she apparently had known what she was doing. She put her hands on my shoulders and I was like, okay, cool. But I didn't know where my hands were supposed to go. So I put my hands on her shoulders too. So what we looked like instead of this cute middle school sort of pair dancing, we looked like two pro wrestlers that were like going at it, you know, like that. And fortunately, I had a, a good friend of mine named Eddie. Eddie was great. Eddie, Eddie came by, snuck behind her, took my hands and put them where they needed to go and then ran off. As only, and as subtly as you think that seventh grader did it, that's as subtle as it was. I didn't know what to, what to do with my hands. I didn't know what to do with my body in that situation. We run into this question a lot. You may not think it because we're kind of always kind of figuring out what to do with our bodies, but we always ask this question, what am I supposed to do with my body? Some of you are asking, what am I supposed to do with my body right now? Am I sitting too close to the person next to me in this pew? Am I sitting in someone's seat? Is someone sitting in my seat? What do I do with my body? Go to a job interview. I don't want to seem too stiff, so I don't want to sit all the way up, but I don't want to seem too relaxed, so I can't slouch. What do I do with my body? When I meet somebody and their spouse for the first time, do I shake his hand or her hand or do I give them a side hug? Do I embrace them? What do I do? What do I do with my body? How do I engage with other people? How do I, do I talk to them closely? Do I not? How's my breath? Good? Bad? Maybe you have a good enough friend to tell you. Lean over to the person next to you and ask them how your breath is. (laughs) How's my, what do I do with my Body, it's a question we ask a lot. Maybe not in those specific terms, but you ask it more than you think. Always aware of your physical presence, your physical space. Do you ever feel like you don't know what to do with your body? 
It's always an awkward situation where you're not really sure what I'm supposed to do with the physical sort of embodiment that God has given me. So what I want us to talk about today, and your, your, your bulletin says this is a, this is a sermon on, on relationships, and, and, and it is. But I want us to talk specifically about our bodies and how we use our bodies to relate to other people, relate to other entities, God, ourselves, other human beings. How do I use this? to communicate and relate to other people? And chiefly, how do I relate God's better story to them through this physical body that God has given me? So we're in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20. And like I said, we're gonna talk about the body and we're talking about those three relationships, God, other people, and ourselves, right? So my body is how I relate to God. My body is how I relate to God. So throughout human history, human beings have elevated either the soul over the body or the body over the soul. We can't seem to get the balance, the mix just right. So some cultures will say the soul is more important. What's inside, if you watch a Disney movie, it's what's inside that counts. Other cultures will elevate the body. The body is what's the most important. And in Corinth, this letter that Paul is writing, the people in Corinth, some of the men, are taking their bodies and they are going and sleeping with prostitutes. And not only are they sleeping with prostitutes, they're saying, I am free to do this, I'm welcome to do this, because it doesn't matter what I do with my body. My soul is rescued and redeemed and ransomed by Jesus Christ, and so what I'm doing with my body doesn't matter because my body and my soul don't mix like that. And Paul's like, "Mm -mm, you've misunderstood the gospel because they very much do. And what happens is they start spitting out false narratives that they've received about the body and the soul, and we also have false narratives that we've received, and they're very similar. So let's look at some of these. The first false narrative that they say and that we receive is that our bodies are for enjoying freedom. Look at verse 12. You'll see some parts of this in quotations. Paul is quoting back to them uh, slogans or mottos that they've thrown at him. So he's quoting some of this back to them. So these aren't all Paul's thoughts. So his quotation that he says is, all things are lawful for me, end quote, and then this is Paul's idea, but not all things are helpful. He spits the quote back out. Again, all things are lawful for me, end quote, but I will not be dominated by anything. So this is the first slogan that we see. All things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want with my body. I'm free. Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. I have freedom in Christ. Paul, you've taught us that we are free. So we're enjoying our freedom, man. Get off our case. This is how we're doing it. And Paul comes back and says, that's not true. Your understanding of Christian freedom is not accurate. And even if it were true, let's say that what you're doing is accurate, it's not always beneficial. It's not always the best thing for you to do to exercise every bit of freedom that you have. It can hurt yourself and it can hurt other people. And Paul's saying, even if it is true, it might not be beneficial because this is, how God, this is not how God has created us, to be a divided soul and a divided body. Those things are supposed to be together. They relate to one another. So we live in a society that has a similar motto to what the Corinthians were throwing out. I can use my body to do whatever I want because I'm free. Now, we don't say that's because freedom in Christ. We just use other mottos. Do whatever makes you happy. You do you. Well, the problem with the do whatever makes you happy motto is always followed with as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, right? Well, if I think about the things and the actions that I take long enough, I can pretty much come to a conclusion as to how I've hurt somebody by what I've done. I like Whataburger, am I right? Amen. I like Whataburger, I like hamburgers, I like red meat. 
Apparently, research is coming out that large amounts of red meat consumption are apparently affecting the climate of the, of the planet, right? If you buy into that, that's fine. If you don't, whatever. But the thing about it is, if I follow certain science, I can get to the point where I'm like, by eating a hamburger at Whataburger, I'm destroying the planet. That seems to be hurting people. If you think hard enough, you, that, that philosophy doesn't hold up. It doesn't work. Because my impact in the world impacts other people because I'm a physical human being and so are you, right? It doesn't work. What Christian Smith says, he says, we've become sovereign individuals lacking conviction or lacking direction. I'm a sovereign state, the United States of Travis, and you are your own entity as well, and it doesn't matter. We don't intersect. And interestingly enough, what's happened is this freedom has become so bent in on itself that we've become really, really self-centered, so much so that did you know that the number one growing form of living, the number one growing form of habitation isn't the marriage relationship, obviously. It's not the uh, cohabiting with a uh, 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 fiance or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, it is living alone. Living alone is the number one growing form of living. Why? Because I don't want anybody to disrupt my own pursuit of personal freedom. So the false narrative is our, 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 our bodies are for enjoying freedom. And Paul says, no, they're not. Because you weren't created to be like that. Our freedom impacts other people. The second false narrative is that our bodies have no lasting significance. Look at verse 13. He says another quote, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Your Bible may end the quote there. I like to extend it. And God will destroy both one and the other, end quote. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The Corinthians believe they could do whatever they want with their body because it's all going to burn anyway. God's just going to destroy it, so what does it matter? I'm going to be this disembodied soul that goes to heaven to be with Jesus forever. And some of you, that's what you believe about the eternal state. You think you're going to get some wings, you're going to get a cloud and a harp, and we've talked about this before, halo, and that's you. That is not what the Bible teaches about eternity. The Bible teaches that we are resurrected bodies with, with glorified bodies, renewed souls, living for eternity in a physical new heaven and a new earth, and God comes and lives with us in a new heaven and a new earth. That's all very physical. So God will destroy your body is a gross misinterpretation of how we understand scripture. It denies the link between the body and the soul, which is heresy. You can't do that. But we've begun to think that God will just destroy our bodies, that our bodies don't matter. That our bodies are significant only in the pursuit of pleasure And only in getting me what I want and what I do with my soul doesn't really matter. My body is a resource. It's a vehicle to be used to get what I want and then to be discarded. We also use our body as a canvas. I want you to think a certain way of me, so I dress a certain way. I comb my hair a certain way. I grow my beard a certain length. I don't let it hang really low because I don't want you to think that I'm not kempt and clean and I I put on makeup, I I, I get my hair cut, I I drive a certain car, I live in a certain house, I have a certain kind of job because everything that's physical about me is about projecting an image to you that I have it all together. And as long as you think I have it all together, it doesn't matter if inside I'm a vapid, shallow human being that is cruel to the core because you think that I'm a certain way. Our bodies are not canvases. And you know what happens When we begin to think of our bodies as a canvas, something to project an image, it leads to the objectification 
of ourselves and it leads to the objectification of human beings. And this objectification of other people, you know what it leads to? It leads to things like murder and violence because you are not an embodied soul made in the image of God in that mindset. In that mindset, you're just a person that's in the way of the things that I want and all I need to do is remove you physically from the world and I don't have to worry about you anymore. It leads to things like sexual assault because you are a body that is there for my pleasure and I don't care if you're saying no, I'm gonna take what I want. It leads to pornography, rampant pornography. Why? Because they're not human beings on the screen. They're just images. They're not real people. And then it leads to the objectification of self. It leads to anxiety, it leads to depression, and it leads to constant comparing and shame. Why? Because I'm not like you. You're better at projecting your image than I am. And because you're better at projecting that image than I am, I become depressed, I become anxious, and I become ashamed. We live in a schizophrenic world where the body is both good a vehicle for pleasure and experience, and it's also bad, something that needs to be manipulated and adjusted so that it's presentable to the world around us. My body doesn't matter as it's created, as God intended it to be. It only matters if it can get me what I want, and if it can't, it needs to be discarded. If it can't put forth its strengths, I need to cover up the weaknesses and cover them up so that you don't see them. It only matters if it can give access to my desires and if it gets in the way of that, it needs to be thrown away. Praise God, he has a better view of our bodies than we do because the true story is that God has created our bodies for him. He's created our bodies for him. Look at verse, uh, the end of verse 13 and into 14. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. God is spirit, right? what God is. We believe that God is spirit. And until the son of God incarnates and puts on flesh, he stays spirit. Jesus now has a physical body. The son has a physical body now, but God is spirit. But God is spirit. And even says in Genesis one, the spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then God comes in and he starts talking. And what does he make? Everything. He makes a physical world. Have you ever stopped to consider why you and I are both a body and a soul? Why do I have both? I think the reason is because God is spirit. And so I have a spirit to relate to him, to connect with him, to bear his image. But I have a body so that I can relate what I learn, what I, can, what I gain from him, I can then relate it to the rest of creation that is physical. Bearing the image of God puts us in this unique position where we're both body and soul. And we can bear the image of God out to the world around us. We bear the image for that reason so we can tell and we can relate to people around us. This is why in church we do so many physical actions, right? Just last week, what did we do? We baptized 45 people out there on that lawn. Look, let's just call it what it is. 45 people went swimming on Sunday. Devoid of spiritual meaning and spiritual reality, that's all that is. But some of you were slightly offended that I said it was swimming. Why? Because it has spiritual significance. It's not just swimming. It is a story. It's rich. It's powerful. It's a physical act showing what's happened inside of my life. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's not just bread and juice. It's the body of Christ given for you. It's the shed blood of the new covenant. 
because there's spiritual significance there. It's meaning. And it's not just in the ordinances. We do physical things all the time. We read. Reading is a physical act. It may not look like you're doing much, but it is a physical act. And we glean things into our spirit, into our heart. We sing together. Again, what other places do you go in your week where you get in a room full of people and you sing? Unless you're in the music industry, like you don't do that. I don't sing at work. I guess I do. I bother people. We listen to each other. We memorize scripture. We talk. We teach. All of these are physical things to relate spiritual realities so that we can connect together and connect to the Lord. When I say you were created to relate, you're created to relate to God so that you might then relate his story, his redemptive, better story for your life to the rest of the world around you. And you cannot relate to God if you don't, I'm sorry, you can't relate that story to other people if you don't know how to relate to God. And for some of us, your worship of the Lord is disembodied. You may be here present in the body. You may be here as a soul ready to, to worship. But as far as engaging your flesh in worship, you don't really do it. When we pray, we need to think about how we use our bodies. Are you on your knees? When you need something from the Lord, are you on your knees? Are you in a posture of supplication? Or do you just kind of sit back casually and be like, all right, well, whatever, this is what I need. When we worship, when we sing together, are you just kind of casually like, all right, whatever. I'm just going to sit here and hang out, wait for the songs to end. I'm here for the sermon anyway. What do we do with our bodies when we worship? Engage your flesh. You're a body and a soul. Both should be engaged in worship. To do so isn't, to, do, to not to do so is not sin. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this. What are you saying about what we believe about the body and the soul? What are you saying about the redemptive plan of Jesus Christ when you don't engage your body? Jesus had a body and it was resurrected and raised to walk and set an example for us. What do we say about our own flesh when we don't engage it in worship? Your body is constantly making nonverbal communication to everyone around you. Shouldn't it be making nonverbal communication to your creator as well? The body also does something else for us. It helps us with our freedom. The Corinthians weren't wrong in that the body is meant for freedom. It is, but the freedom that we're supposed to enjoy by our body is the freedom to know that we are limited. We're limited. I am not all-knowing, I'm not all-powerful, I'm not able to be everywhere at once. I'm limited to a certain time, a certain space, and I am capable of only doing so many things before I absolutely break down. You know why? Because I'm not God. And the way that I know I'm not God is that I have a body. Now, I understand that Jesus put on flesh. Jesus is the God-man. He's 100% God and 100% man. But for the rest of us, you are not God. And my limitation is actually freeing. Because I'm not trying to control the world around me. I'm not trying to be the creator. I'm not trying to be in charge. God is in charge and that allows me to be free to then follow and pursue him with the time and the space and the energy that he has given me. This is why the spiritual disciplines of limiting yourself are really good. Things like fasting. It's a practice we don't really do a lot. Why? Because it reminds us that we're limited. Unplugging from the internet, from your phone, from social media. Those are good ways to remind yourself you're limited. And out of our limitation, we can worship God. We can relate to God. Part of worshiping God is acknowledging that you are not him. If we come to God on equal terms, that doesn't work well. 
We have to have humility. So since we're not occupied being a God, which is good, we're then free to do something else with our freedom. And it's to relate to other people. We're free for other people. My body is how I relate to other people. So how do you use your body when you relate to other human beings? Use a handshake, right? Eye contact, proximity, we've talked a little bit about that. Hug, facial expressions, gestures. If I were to just stand up here kind of like this the whole time, it'd be kind of weird, right? Just gonna do the rest of the sermon just like this. That's real strange. We'll try it, we'll try it one day. The body is vitally important for how you relate to other people. This is why people don't like online relationships, don't like long distance dating. It's not because those are inferior forms of connecting with people. It's because if I love you, I want to be around you. I want to experience your life as you experience it. I don't want the bullet points at the end of the day. Why? Because I want to be a body with you in your life as you bodily experience it. I want to be with you, right? So the body's important for me to relate to other people. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself what it is that I'm relating to them? What is my body, what is my interaction, my physical interaction with another human being? What is that saying about myself? What does that say about me? What does that say about my God? What does that say about the redemptive story that he's done for us? Well, let's talk about that. The Corinthian men, like we said, are going and visiting prostitutes. And Paul begins to develop a larger theological reason why this is a bad idea. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You don't belong to yourself. That's what he's telling the Corinthians. Basically, what he's telling the Corinthians is that when you go and visit that prostitute, you're taking Jesus with you. And when you, because you can't take off your union with Christ. I can't set aside my unity with Christ for a minute while I go and do what I want. No, that unity maintains, it abides. I can't take it off. And so Jesus comes everywhere my body goes, Jesus comes with me. Let that seek in for a little bit about what we spend our time doing. It's not just that Jesus sees us doing it. I think all of us kind of grasp that, like God sees everything you do. I know that. No, 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 no. Paul is implying, not so subtly, that Jesus is almost being forced to participate in something that he has expressly said, no, 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 I don't want to be a part of this because we are one with Christ. Our body is one with him. This is a deep supernatural reality. We are unified to Christ by his resurrection. So a physical act, his physical resurrection, the spirit comes and lives in our hearts and unites us to his body. And so we learn in Genesis 2 that when man and woman come together, they become one flesh. And so this is Paul's issue. This is Paul's argument. What you do with the body doesn't just matter for your soul and your spirit. It has great cosmic ramifications. It's not just a small thing. It's a huge deal. And so our bodies are no longer just the way that I relate my story to the world. It's not just for me anymore. No, no, no. My body has been co-opted. It's been commandeered to tell the gospel story. It's been commandeered to tell you and to tell me and to tell everybody around me that Jesus Christ came and dwelt in the flesh because I'm a sinner, because I make mistakes. I screwed up. And that he died on the cross for my sins to pay that penalty. And now I can be right with God if I put my faith and trust in him. That is why I have a body now. 
That is why we haven't all been sucked up into heaven and, and, and just gone. Because we need to be here in a body, in the flesh, to continue to tell the gospel story of Jesus Christ. Sex isn't just about sex when you are a follower of Christ. Just like everything else we do with our bodies isn't just that. Eating isn't eating. Drinking isn't drinking. Rest isn't rest. Everything we physically do with our body is a part of telling this grand narrative. Let's think about it this way. What did Jesus do with his body? Well, Travis, he walked on water, he raised the dead, he fed 5,000, he died, was buried, was resurrected. Yeah, you're right. And I don't know that many of us or any of us can really do any of those things. But Jesus also walked with people. He talked with them, he listened to them. Uh, He uh, fed them when he could in non-miraculous ways. Uh, He also um, uh, listened to them, I think I said that. He was really, really, really good about eating with people. In fact, he got a lot of uh, flack because he ate with people that he shouldn't have been eating with. And I'm pretty sure we can do all of those things. Your body is given to you so that you might continue to tell the story of Jesus Christ again and again and again. Because our bodies are members of Christ's body, united to him by the resurrection and the spirit and our faith in him. Everything you do, every time you breathe air, every breath you take is a story to the world around you. You are telling a story. So when you work with other people, the way you interact with them, the way you care for them, the way you, you maybe ask about their family, what's going on in their life, being conscientious of what's happening in their life, you are telling them that Jesus cares about them. Not just you, but them. When you interact, when you forgive your family, you don't blow up at your, at your kids, when you treat your wife or your husband with respect and gentleness, you remind them that the gospel is full of grace and gentleness and love. Your body carries with you the gospel story because your soul has been redeemed and your body will be as well. And if you think, Travis, this doesn't work this way, I had a guy in my office this week tell me that because of the physical presence of, of, of people in his life, and all of them are believers that have come from different avenues, even though for most of his life he has not been told that he is loved and appreciated and significant, he's beginning to believe that maybe God values him because the bodily presence of believers in his life are telling him otherwise. And those voices are chasing back the darkness. And it's not our voices. It's the voice of the Lord speaking into this man's life. And yet we still remain silent. We don't use our tongues that he gave us. So that's physical relationships. Let's kind of focus in on sexual relationships, how this applies to sexual relationships. Verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Paul's issue with the Corinthian men is that they are redeemed, rescued, ransomed, soon to be glorified individuals. And they're going and taking from a woman who has not heard the good news of Jesus Christ. They are using her and they are not giving her the gospel message, the most treasured, valued thing that they have. They're withholding from her. What does that communicate to the prostitute? using her and discarding her? What does that tell her about Jesus? What does that tell her about the gospel? And if we tease this out a little bit, what do my sexual relationships, my sexual uh, uh, activities that I engage in, what does it tell the world about the gospel? What does it tell me about the gospel? Because if I'm a follower of Jesus, united to him through the resurrection and the spirit, my sex life is telling a story. 
if I'm hooking up or sleeping around, I'm not committing to anybody, aren't you telling those people that Jesus only values them for what they get out of, what he can get out of them, and then he's going to just discard them and move on? Because if you're a believer, that's, you're united with Christ in the flesh. That's the message being communicated. If you are living with your fiance, or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and you're living together because financially it makes a lot of sense, aren't you communicating to them that love is only a matter of convenience and when it stops making economic sense, we're not going to do it anymore? What is the gospel? What gospel message then am I saying? That Jesus only loves them when it's convenient? When it makes economic sense? When you can provide value? When you stop providing value, Jesus is out. Because Jesus says that the right way to tell his story is between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. That's the way he wants his story communicated. And anything outside those parameters distorts the message of the gospel. If I'm cheating on my spouse, aren't I telling her and the world around me and the person that I'm sleeping with, aren't I telling all of them that the gospel is about getting my needs met and it doesn't matter what other people need? Because sex isn't just about sex. But when a man and a woman come together in a marriage relationship, all their past, their present, their future comes together. All the difficulty, all the pain, all the hurt comes together. And it tells this beautiful story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It tells them about it. Because we die to ourselves. We're vulnerable with each other. We're intimate with one another. And Jesus died so that we might live. And we die to one another in that relationship. And we do it because that's the way that God has said he wants his story told. Now, if you're a single adult here and you're like, well, Travis, I guess I can't tell the gospel story then, right? Wrong. Because I know what you're doing or what God has called you to do. He's called you to wait. He's called you to wait. And you're like, well, Travis, come on. Everybody tells me to wait. Yeah. You know why we tell you to wait? Has anybody ever told you the gospel significance of waiting as an, as an unmarried person to have sex? Because there's a part of the story, and we're in this story right now, where we are waiting for our king to return. We're waiting for Jesus Christ to come back. So every day that you don't sleep with somebody as a single adult, you're waiting. And you're testifying to a greater waiting that's going on. I'm expecting my king to come back and rescue me, and I'm not going to settle for substitutes. I'm not going to settle for anything less than the risen Jesus Christ and what he has for me which is a man or a woman who's willing to commit to me in a marriage relationship. And if you don't get that, don't ruin your story over it. And if you already have, guess what? There's grace and forgiveness. Start waiting today and tell the gospel by waiting. You get to tell the best part of the story because it's the part where a king comes back. Now you might say this, Travis, there's no way sex carries this much freight. No way. I think you're wrong. Not only do I think sex carries this much weight, I think it carries a greater amount of weight than this. I think I've shortchanged it a little bit. Because everything we do with our body matters. Because sex is never just sex. There's a reason why it's intriguing, why it's mysterious. And it's because there's a spiritual side to every physical act that we engage in, particularly with sexual relationships. So my body is how I relate to God. It's how I relate to other people. It's also how I relate to myself. It's how I relate to myself. Uh, Paul tells us in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. This is a constant running away. This isn't a one-time running away. This is a constant, every opportunity you can, flee from it. And he says there's a reason for this. Look at verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
Sexual immorality does something to us. Anything outside of the way that God wants his story communicated between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship does something to us. So sex is an attempt to relate. It's an attempt to connect with other people. I'm lonely, so maybe I sleep with somebody. I'm lonely, so I look at pornography. Sexual immorality is an opportunity, is, is, an, is, an, is a chance to reach out to somebody and try and make a connection or to kill the loneliness or the pain or the depression in our lives. I get that. But Paul is saying something here. He's like, even when you do that, if you do that outside of the confines of what God has said he wants to do, you're actually hurting your ability to relate. You're not making it better. You're hurting yourself. You're not killing the loneliness. You're actually making the loneliness greater. Not killing the depression. It's hurting you more. That's what happens. And ultimately this diminishes us. It diminishes our ability to relate to God and to relate to other people. It diminishes the temple. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Temple of God is where people met to worship, to give glory to God. Where God's presence dwelt and people came to the temple to get to know him. If we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, people come to us to get to know God. And if our ability to relate to them is diminished, then our ability to relate that story is diminished. And in some ways, we even diminish our own ability to relate to God. Not because God doesn't forgive us. All of us have sexual sins, sexual scars that we carry with us. I get that. But if you're like me, sometimes those things pop into my head that I've done, things that I've seen. And I think to myself, there's no way that God can love me for this. Or I think to myself, wow, I'm having a hard time. I must not be right with the Lord right now. It plays on me and I have to spend physical time reorienting myself to the gospel of grace that God has given for me. So it takes time and energy to connect with the Lord there that I wouldn't have to do if I hadn't damaged myself in that way. So God tells us to do something. He tells us to glorify him with our bodies. Verse 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. This moves us out of the sexual realm and back into the realm of just overall, what do I do with my body, my physical body? How do I glorify God with my body? Well, I'm gonna give you one example. One example. Tomorrow morning, you're gonna wake up. And you're going to stand in front of the mirror and you're going to look at yourself in the mirror and you're going to notice some things. You're going to notice maybe some gray hair where it used to be there was not gray hair. You're going to notice some wrinkles. You're going to maybe notice some age spots. Or you're going to notice that there's this certain part of you that no matter what you do, it continues to gain weight. And guys, we all know where that lands. Pow, right there in this area. It's probably all the ice cream sandwiches I eat, right? Love ice cream sandwiches. You'll see that part of your face or your body that you don't like. You'll see your nose, your eyes, maybe a bald spot. And rather than entering into worship because God has made you, created you, given you a body and a soul together, you will grieve. You'll grieve your age. You'll miss years gone by. You'll lament your size or your shape. You cover up those things that have disappointed you so much. Every picture you take, you'll make sure you angle a certain way so that picture doesn't capture that part of you. And you'll miss out on an opportunity to glorify God with your body. And it has nothing to do with sex and it has nothing to do with relationships. It's just between you and your creator. You are, we are frequently disappointed by the body that God gave us. The fact that it breaks down, the fact that it, it looks a certain way, it acts a certain way, it does certain things that we don't like. And you'll take that disappointment everywhere you go and eventually it'll build up to the point where you begin to judge everybody around you based on how they look. 
You'll compare yourself to them. I'm better than them because I don't look as bad as they do. I look better than them. Oh, look at that person's makeup. It's terrible. Oh my gosh, she dyed her hair that way. Oh my gosh, his car is terrible. On and on and on. So tomorrow morning when you wake up, I want you to take the opportunity to glorify God with your body. That you'll see the person for who it is in that mirror. That person is someone that Jesus Christ died for. Somebody who bears the image of God, was created to do that as a body and a soul. I hope you'll see that that body and soul was so valuable that Jesus Christ died on the cross for it. In fact, Jesus had a body that, that had no scars, had no wounds, but he marred it and broke it up. Why? So that he could rescue us and present us to his father. Pray that when you see your body in the morning, you won't see it as anything other than the temple of the Holy Spirit and a place where people can gather and worship. I pray that you'll smile because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I pray that if you have body image issues, I pray that for one morning, that fear that you have when you're getting out of the shower or seeing your body, you will say, no, 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 no. Today, I am made in the image of God and it doesn't matter what I think I see in the mirror or what other people see in me, I am made in the image of God. And you will know from that place of vulnerability that God loves you, body and soul. And that you were made to tell the story of him in flesh. Put on flesh and came and dwelt amongst men to rescue them. To tell God's better story for relationships and for our body. Your body matters. It's how you relate to God. You cannot relate to God without your body. Your body matters because it's how you relate to other people. It's how you tell them the story of the gospel. So your sexual relationships matter more than you probably think. Your body matters because it's how you relate to yourself. And if you are so consumed with hating the person you see in the mirror, it doesn't leave a lot of room for loving the creator that made the person that you don't like. So let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I pray that for anybody in this room that doesn't like what they see in the mirror, maybe doesn't like the presence of another person maybe doesn't know how to relate to you, Lord God, I pray that you would show them in this next little bit of time, maybe throughout this week, Lord God, how to relate to themselves, how to relate to you, and how to relate to other people with the body that you've given them. I pray for healing and restoration. I pray for forgiveness when we mess up. And Lord, I pray that we would lean heavily on your grace because our bodies have been tainted by sin and we can't help sometimes the way we see them and the things that we do with them. So I pray you would rescue us and you would come soon, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. Come and join us as we seek to follow Jesus every day. We meet every Sunday at 9.15 a.m. for our small group Bible studies called Connect Groups and 10.45 a.m. for worship. We hope to see you soon at Park City's Baptist Church.